welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. I am happy to be back. As many of you know, I was away last week, all of last week. I was in Israel uh, on a delegation trip, and it was absolutely amazing, phenomenal, um, really educational. And um, I'm going to talk all about that trip in a bit. But uh, lots of stuff happened while I was gone. I mean, it was uh, hard to keep up while I was over there. But of course, me being me, I was paying attention still to what was happening because I couldn't possibly be out of pocket for that long. (laughs) But um, it was a lot. And um, during that trip, it was a very rigorous schedule. It was not a vacation for people who thought I was over there just vacationing. It was not. It was a it was a a work related trip. And um, I got a little under the weather coming back. So that's what you hear in my voice. So I apologize ahead of time for a little bit of the rasp and congestion in my voice. But it was from my overseas trip in Israel and just a combination of exhaustion. And it actually rained. It hadn't rained in like three months there and it rained for the last two and a half days. <laughs> so um, at one point we were up in the Golan Heights and it was pretty cold and rainy and, you know, a combination of all of those things and traveling and airplanes. And so I'm a little, little under the weather, but I'll survive. It was all worth it. So, yeah, it feels like, um, I, well, first of all, it felt like I was gone for a month giving, given how much shit went down while I was gone. You know, I mean, the day before I left, George H.W. Bush passed away. And so that was pretty sad, you know, especially for me as a Republican. Some other people maybe not, but for for me, I that was um the end of an era. He was um, you know, the Bush family they are you however you feel about their politics, one thing they are good and decent people. They're patriots and they love this country. And they have class. They respect the office of the presidency. And, um, you know, eh, it, they, they couldn't be more polar opposite than what we have right now in the in the White House. So kind of ref- all the reflections on, on George H.W. Bush and, and his life and the Bushes and their the way that they governed. Um, it just it just highlighted how awful Donald Trump is even more so. And just, just, just how awfully he's governing, if that's what you want to call it. And, um, just how disgraceful he is in the white house. So there was that, I mean, you just couldn't deny it. There were some people who said, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't be making those comparisons. You know what? I'm sorry. There's no way you can't. There's no way you can't. George HW Bush lived a life of service to this country from him going into the Navy, being shot down. He was a war hero. He served in multiple capacities in public office from, you know, congressman to CIA director to envoy to China to, I mean, he was to vice president and to president. I mean, you know, his son was president. His other son was governor of Florida. I mean, come on. You just can't compare the level of service the Bush family has given to this country um, to what Donald Trump. I mean, there's just no way you can't avoid that that comparison. And I was able to catch some of the services while I was over in Jerusalem. I was all over Israel. 
But when the actual services were happening, I was watching from my hotel room. It was you know seven hours ahead over there. And uh, I got to tell you, the body language was something I was definitely interested in watching how Trump interacted with all the other living presidents and how he interacted with the Bush family. You know, I, you know, they didn't want his ass there, <laughs> but they had to, you know, because like I said, they're classy people and they didn't want it to become a story if they said, you know, we don't want you there because that would be a story in and of itself. And it would just take away from honoring um, H.W. Bush. But it was it just Trump was did you see him snub the Clintons and, and um, the Carters and just his body language. And then he didn't read Apostles Creed, the Apostles Creed and the hymns and stuff like he's just oh god he's such, such a mess he's such a mess it just i i don't i don't think there has ever been a moment where donald trump has risen to the occasion on his own maybe when someone has scripted him and he's like forced to but it's scripted but never on his own have you ever seen him just on his own rise to the occasion <laughs> i can't think of one example of that not one and that's a damn shame so anyway so we say goodbye to another one of the greatest generation George H.W. Bush in that World War II generation um beautiful services I've mentioned that my husband is federal law enforcement and he was he had a first-hand view let's say of what was going on um and um I got he got to send he sent me a couple couple pictures and stuff and videos so I could at least feel like I was there for a little bit but there was that which was pretty big news um but in the middle of all of that there was a whole lot of other stuff going on concerning the Mueller investigation you know the fake news made up witch hunt no okay it's not Despite Donald Trump's insistence that this whole Mueller thing is just some concoction of the deep state made up to, you know, to harass him, it ain't, okay? This is very real stuff. What Robert Mueller is doing, the special counsel, what he has been doing for the last year and a half, has method- he has methodically been investigating and and getting to the bottom of what the hell happened during the 2016 election with Russian collusion, with people who were involved, and it has taken his mandate, allows him to also pursue anything else that comes up in the pursuit of the Russian meddling and of the potential obstruction of justice by the president. And a whole lot of stuff has been uncovered during this process, which we knew it would. And those who were so opposed to a special counsel knew that once you opened up that can of worms there was no telling what was in that pandora's box two what two metaphors right there <laughs> but applicable and it seems that every couple of weeks we get more and more information and the more information we get the more facts that we find out the worse it becomes for Donald Trump and you can always tell when there you know when something big is about to drop because Donald Trump's Twitter feed becomes more and more hysterical. He tweets out all these rants at God awful hours about all kinds of things in all caps and misspellings. That's how you know. That's how you know something is brewing. 
And sure enough, last week while I was in Israel, we had a couple of major, major um, uh, uh, things happen in the in the Mueller investigation. But before I get to that, with the holidays just around the corner, now is the time to order holiday cards for family and friends. This year, create custom holiday photo cards quickly, easily, and affordably at simplytoimpress.com. Simplytoimpress.com is your holiday photo card headquarters with thousands of unique Christmas cards and other designs to choose from. All you do is upload your family photos or get them from Facebook or Instagram, personalize the text, and you're done. It's really that easy. Simplytoimpress.com prints your cards professionally on your choice of premium cardstock in just a few days and rushes them straight to your door. The New York Times Wirecutter named Simply to Impress their favorite custom photo card service. Simply to Impress even offers foil cards and hundreds of great holiday card designs for your business as well. Place your order today to save 30% and get free shipping. Just enter promo code DEAL at checkout. Save big on holiday photo cards today using promo code DEAL at simplytoimpress.com. That's simplytoimpress.com. John Kelly, the survivor. I mean, it's what the working in the White House is really like a game of survivor. It's like a reality show. Who's getting voted off the island next? Well, John Kelly. He's out of there. Frankly, I'm shocked he made it this far. Really. I thought, you know, he made it a year longer than I thought he would. Because it's an impossible job. Donald Trump can't be managed. The chief of staff position is basically to be the chief manager of the White House, of the staff in the White House, and to basically manage the president. And this guy can't be managed. He thrives in chaos. Like he creates environments to be chaotic. He like gets off on that. And I don't understand it. Now, people say that he even did this when he was um, when he ran casinos, which looking back now, I guess, in retrospect, that kind of you could see that because his casinos were a mess. That's why they all failed. But it was said, you know, it's been written about that he did the same thing. This is his management style. He pits people against each other so no one can gain enough power to pose a threat to him. What a cynical way of running things. No wonder he's a horrible businessman. But anyway, so he's doing the same thing in the White House. And you can't govern that way. You just can't. You can't. And unlike when you're in private business like Trump was, you can't just file for bankruptcy and, and, and erase all your mistakes. No, the American government, the American people are the ones who get screwed over. You can't just say, oh, well, I'm just going to you know, mail that in and start all over. It doesn't work like that when you're president of the United States. So we pay the price. The country pays the price for this freaking chaos all the damn time. So John Kelly's out. The announcement comes out um, and it was in the middle of the Mueller sentencing stuff coming down for Flynn and Manafort and Cohen, which I'll get to in a couple minutes. And now the race for chief of staff is on. Now, I mean, it had been rumored for months that John Kelly was wasn't going to survive, despite the fact that Trump came out and said, oh, no, John Kelly's going to stay. I asked him to stay on through the election and he's going to stay. Yeah, right. We knew that was a bunch of bullshit when it happened. That was damage control at the time. But uh, there was there was a list of people 
you know, people are always jockeying for position. The White House, let me just explain something. The, the position of White House Chief of Staff is oftentimes considered like the second most powerful position in Washington. Because you have, no one has any more access to the president than his chief of staff. He is the gatekeeper on a lot of things. And the chief of staff makes a lot of unilateral decisions. So it's a really important position. And if you look in the past of people who've held that position, I mean, you know, they haven't been any slouches for the most part. And they are very competent, politically savvy people that understand how things work. You can't have an amateur in that position. You can't have someone, you know, no disrespect to John Kelly. He's a Marine general and had a very accomplished career in the military. He was not the right person for that job. Maybe he thought he could be the adult in the room. Well, you know what? There are no more adults in the room. When it, as soon as you get into the, into the Trump orbit, it seems to reduce everyone to, to infantile idiots just like Trump. It just, that seems to be what happens to almost everyone. Or their careers are destroyed or they leave in embarrassment or, I mean, it just doesn't end well. Rick Wilson wrote the book, my friend, shout out to Rick Wilson. What did he write? His book title, Everything Trump Touches Dies, including people's careers. And he was right. Rick Wilson was one of my first guests on the podcast, by the way. So you can go back and listen to that episode. It was a good one. <laughs> I think it was the second episode. But anyway, so the race for chief of staff is on now. And there's a list of people. And, you know, before when people were, were thinking that John Kelly was out going to be out the door months ago, there were rumors of, of Corey Lewandowski possibly being in the running to be chief of staff. God help us if that ever happened. Remember him, Corey Lewandowski? He was Trump's campaign manager. He was a nobody from New Hampshire that came out of nowhere, kissed Trump's ass to get it in, in, enough to get himself into the campaign manager position. Yeah, and then he got pushed out as Trump's campaign actually started to take off. And they brought in Paul Manafort <clears throat> and Paul Manafort as chairman. And it reduced Corey Lewandowski's role considerably. And he was eventually pushed out. And then CNN hired him during the remainder of the campaign to be a commentator. And, you know, that's their prerogative. I didn't particularly care for Mr. Lewandowski. He's an obnoxious person. And um, <clears throat> I found him just to be incredulous often and very arrogant and obnoxious but whatever um he had access so you know he had some use and then he left cnn and tried to open a lobbying firm but didn't want to call it a lobbying firm and call it a consulting firm or something and i don't know he's he's been hanging around and he's been in and out of the white house and he still has direct access to the president and he's tried to capitalize on that and um you know Imagine that this freaking guy, he's the guy that you guys may remember during the election, he shoved Michelle Fields, that reporter, like, not shoved her, he grabbed her because of, I forgot why now, so much things, so many things happened, but then he tried to deny that he didn't do it, and then it was on camera, on video, and, and then there was a whole thing, whether he was going to be brought up on charges of assault, and it was a whole, it was a whole thing, but he's bad news, this Lewandowski, but... 
you know, he uh, he's still hanging around. Trump likes him because he kisses his ass. So, you know, we all know how Trump feels about people like that. Well, <clears throat> no one's really taking that seriously. But just the fact that his name had been floating around months before, it was like, good Lord. Now, at least there's some professional people, adults, who are being considered. But Trump can't find anybody that'll take the job right now. <laughs> I mean, someone by the time, you know, probably in a couple days after this podcast goes live, someone will have accepted it. But the the person who whose name had been floating around was Nick Ayers, who's Vice President Pence's chief of staff, which I thought was very strange. I mean, Nick Ayers is a very politically savvy guy and competent, at least. But Trump doesn't really even fully support, doesn't fully um, trust Pence. It's been reported. Well, I get it. Trump, doesn't, he's paranoid anyway, in general. He doesn't trust anybody but his family. Let's just be honest about that. It's like a mafia boss. Um, but why would you even open the door for your vice president's chief of staff to be your chief of staff? Like, you, you, you have to trust him somewhat. It just seems like you're letting the fox in the hen house. <laughs> um we all know that Pence has his own ambitions. So you think Pence's people don't have their own ambitions? They don't want to see Trump succeed necessarily because then, I mean, Pence is trying to jockey for his own positioning. He's just waiting it out till Trump either gets impeached or something or indicted. <laughs> I, I mean, that's just my speculation here. But uh, it just, I don't know. It had been reported that Nick Ayer's name had been floated out there before Trump had actually um given it real consideration so there was some part of that but Nick Ayers was smart enough to cozy up to Javanka to Jared and Ivanka because they're the gatekeepers really if you get along with the kids then you can get along with the president and they have a lot of influence in what goes on in the West Wing which is also what causes a lot of conflict in the West Wing because neither one of them has any business being in the damn West Wing it's nepotism at its worst Ivanka is not qualified to be a counselor to the president and Jared Kushner is so conflicted. You, you know, you don't know which way is up with him. He it's and his family and their business and their real estate financial problems. He shouldn't be anywhere near any kind of positions of power in government. Just the conflicts are endless. That's a whole, that could be an episode in and of itself. In past episodes, I talked about the conflict of interest concerning him and um, uh, the, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, MBS, and that cozy relationship, which continues on, by the way. It's been reported that Jared Kushner has been giving MBS PR advice on how to weather this Kosoji murder um, storm. Are you fucking kidding me? These people murdered a a journalist who was a legal resident in the United States, by the way, working for a United States publication, the Washington Post. They murdered him in cold blood in this consulate in Turkey in a horrific way, okay? They sawed up his body and like into pieces and I don't know, it was just terrible. And a direct counselor to the president of the United States, a senior official is giving advice to them on on how to basically get out of it how to weather the PR storm that is so unacceptable on so many levels I talk about uh, Jared Kushner and, and, and Saudi Arabia and all that in, a, in 
a couple episodes ago on my podcast. If you haven't heard it, I suggest you go download it. It's, um, you know, give some context. But anyway, so Nick Ayers was cozying up to them and Jared and Ivanka wanted him to be chief of staff. And over the weekend, it looked like Trump was going to name his name John Kelly's replacement. And a lot of us had bets going that there was no way that Nick Ayers was going to get this. <laughs> but since then, a lot of things happened with the Mueller investigation. A lot of, you know, the sentencing memos came out and more and more information just showed what kind of deep shit Trump is really in with the Russia stuff. So Nick Ayers was like, mm, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to leave the administration. I'm not accepting the chief of staff position. I'm going to leave the administration at the end of the year. I want to go back to my family in Georgia. Thanks. The guy's like 36 years old. Who in politics turns down the chief of staff position? That's like a dream position for most political operatives. And and this guy was like, nah, I'm good. I'm going back to my family in Georgia. I'll work on the campaign, though. <laughs> he doesn't want to be anywhere near this shitstorm coming. Let's remember, going into the new year, there's a Congress, there's a new Congress. It's going to be taken over by Democrats in the House, which means lots of subpoenas, lots of oversight hearings. Trump is not going to skate by like he did when Republicans controlled the the House. So he said, I'm out of here, which was pretty humiliating for the president and humiliating for Jared and um, Jared and, and Ivanka. People don't say no to that kind of job. Well, Nick Ayers just did. So that leaves a possibility of who else it could be. A couple other people said no. Steve Mnuchin was like, nah. Um, the uh, trade representative was like, nah, I'm good. Who else said no? Um, oh, Mick Mulvaney who was a congressman who now holds two positions, by the way. He's the budget director, OMB director, and director of the Consumer Protection Board, which is unprecedented. How the hell are you running these two major agencies? But whatever. That goes to show you that Trump cannot cannot attract enough talent to fill these positions. There's still hundreds of vacancies, by the way, throughout the federal government. There's something called Schedule C appointments. These are political appointments um, in each cabinet agency. And they're appointed by the, you know, whoever the president is. So that you have career people whose jobs remain regardless of who's in the White House. And then you have the political appointments <clears throat> whose jobs are only there during whoever is in office that appointed them. So that allows the president's agenda to be pushed through in the cabinet agencies, you know, the Treasury Department, Energy Department, HUD, whatever. Um, but then you also have to have the career people who have to be there long term that are unaffected by politics, who are there to carry out the mission of the cabinet agency. Simply put, there are hundreds of Schedule C positions still unfilled. Again, let this level, the level of vacancies, this unheard of because nobody wants to fucking work for this administration. Who would you? I wouldn't. I have friends that are in the administration and God bless them. I get it. They're just putting in their time. As a career booster, they're going to do a year and then they go back to the private sector and make money as a lobbyist. But I mean, that's on them. I couldn't do it. But whatever. Everybody has different prerogatives. So who else? Well, Chris Christie's name is floating out there as a possibility. Yes, Chris Christie's back. Poor Chris Christie. <laughs> he thought he was going to get attorney general. but That didn't happen. 
Remember, he was in, in, in charge of the transition team. They booted him off of that. <laughs> Chris Christie has been treated terribly, and yet he still hangs around. Have some dignity, will you please? You know, you're from my home state of Jersey. I used to like you. What are you doing, dude? Like, Chris Christie, man, killing me. Killing me. But Chris Christie's name is floating around because he was a former U.S. attorney. Not, in addition to being governor of New Jersey prior to that, he was the state, the U, um, the U.S. attorney for New Jersey. So he has experience as a lawyer, which would come in handy trying to manage any potential impeachment hearings and what's going on with the with the Mueller investigation uh, moving forward. So that's why his name is floating around too. So who knows? Oh, Mark Meadows, Representative Mark Meadows. He is the head of the Freedom Caucus. That's like the Tea Party people, part of the Republican Party over there in the House. Him and Jim Jordan, they're the big rabble-rousers and Trump's biggest cheerleaders in the House. So um, Mark Meadows has been trying to um, position himself too, talking about it would be an honor to be the chief of staff and trying to kiss ass to get the position because to be honest with you now that Republicans are out of power in the house, they don't really have, I mean, it sucks to be in the minority. <laughs> so you, you don't have that. You don't control the committees anymore. You're basically held hostage to what the Democrats want to do in the house. So Mark Meadows is like kind of over it, I'm assuming and deciding he'd be much more effective as a chief of staff over in the white house. So we'll see. We shall see. By the end of this week, I'm sure somebody will emerge um, out of that list of people I just mentioned. We'll see. Maybe, I don't know, maybe a dark horse will swoop in. But it's an impossible job. You have to be able to manage Jared and Ivanka, which I already told you is like impossible. You have to be able to manage Trump. That's freaking impossible. Um, you have to be able to handle the legal storm that's brewing because it is a mess. You'll probably have to end whoever chief, the chief of staff is, is going to be in the middle of the Mueller investigation and any, any, um, obstruction of justice stuff. Cause God knows what Trump tries to do every single day that, that people stop him from trying to do. And former secretary of state, Rex Tillerson just did his first major interview since he got fired last summer, whenever it was. Yeah. And he was like, the president, I would have to tell him like, we can't do this, Mr. President. I understand what you're trying to do, but it's illegal. So it's against the law. We can't do that. <laughs> and he also said that Trump was undisciplined, didn't like to read. Yeah, no shit. And what did Trump do? He tweeted like a 12-year-old and called Rex Tillerson lazy and dumb. Dumb as, dumb as a rock. A little projection, perhaps, Mr. President? You ever realize that? When Trump tweets those kinds of insults, it's like, it's projection. <laughs> it really is. Anyway, so good luck with uh, whoever the new chief of staff is going to be. You're putting your reputation, your professional reputation on the line. But somebody's got to run the place, right? Jeez. So speaking of somebody's got to run the place and the legal storm brewing. All right, the big news. I'm sure everyone heard about, you know, Michael Flynn, Paul Manafort, and Michael Cohen and the Mueller investigation and all of these sentencing memos coming out last week. It's a lot and it's complicated. It really is. And I think I just don't want people's eyes to start glazing over because it actually is consequential. And I'm going to try my best right now to explain why 
everything that happened last week matters without having your eyes glaze over. <laughs> I pay attention to things like this. Um, so you don't necessarily have to with this level of detail. So I can come and I can explain it in simple terms. All right, I'm going to start with Michael Flynn. I'm going to go in chronological order the way it happened last week. And then after after this, I uh, will talk about my trip to Israel. <clears throat> so last week, Michael Flynn. Who was Michael Flynn? Michael Flynn was a lieutenant general in the military. He served 30 plus years. He was head of the DIA uh, under Obama. Um, the Defense Intelligence Agency. It's one of our major intelligence agencies. He ran into some trouble with the Obama administration. He ended up getting fired from that position. So he was a little bitter. Then he jumped on the Trump train during the campaign. So he was involved as a, an advisor on military affairs, foreign affairs, intelligence stuff during the campaign. One of the first. And Michael Flynn at that time also was doing he was now a private citizen he was retired from the military and he was a private citizen so you know you don't make a lot of money when you're in the military and he was ready now to make some money and in doing so he started a consulting firm and started doing speeches and he took money from Russian entities to give speeches and do things in Russia he wasn't completely forthcoming about the, that money and what he was doing that was problematic enough but also during the, the campaign and then into the transition, he was, I guess, promised the national security advisor position if Trump won. And during the transition, he had some contacts with Russians saying that we would probably go easy on sanctions and not to worry about whatever the Obama administration was doing. Basically, he wasn't having conversations he shouldn't have been having, making making promises that he shouldn't have been making before he was actually national security advisor. You're not really allowed to do that. So the people he, the Russians he'd been talking to were under surveillance by our, our intelligence agencies as that's just normal. Um, and so he, these conversations were caught up in those surveillance operations. Well, this was problematic and the intelligence community notified the Obama administration like, yeah, hey, this Michael Flynn has been talking to so-and-so in Russia and they've been talking about some stuff that they probably shouldn't have been talking about. You need to give the Trump, the incoming Trump administration a heads up about this guy. They tried to, Trump didn't want to hear it. And so he still named Flynn as national security advisor. Well, Michael Flynn lasted all three weeks as national security advisor because people were concerned that he was compromised with the Russians. Now I'm not saying like treason compromise, but like, you know, a little too cozy with them for whatever reasons. I'm not, you know, Michael Flynn, I'm sure is a good guy. And, you know, everyone I, who I know that worked with him said he was great. You know, everybody has their flaws, but we're not talking treason here, but just making maybe just a little overly ambitious and just making mistakes because he was outside of his lane. <clears throat> in the political realm. Well, he ended up when he got um, interviewed because at this point there had already been an investigation opened up into Russian meddling. Don't forget this investigation into Russian meddling started in 2016, it started during the campaign in the summer of 2016. So people, they were already investigating this. Our, um, the FBI was, 
So he was interviewed and Michael Flynn was not forthcoming about his contacts with Russians. He lied. You can't do that. That's a federal crime. So he was one of the first to plead guilty during the special counsel investigation. Almost a year, about a year ago, actually, it's been a year. And during that time, he hadn't been sentenced yet because the Mueller team was trying to find out how much information he knew. And it's just typical when you have a witness, you know, anybody who, anyone who watches mafia movies and mafia trials, <laughs> you see how it goes. You get, you know, you get one of the lower guys, you see if you can squeeze them for information, you cut them a deal and maybe take time off their sentence. They give up the big fish, right? So in this case, Flynn was looking at potential jail time. And his son also is no prize, by the way. Um, his son, he was, he, he got into some trouble too with things he put on Twitter and some of the, you know, um, white nationalist crap. It was ridiculous. So anyway, so, um, so Flynn decided to take a deal. He pleaded guilty to this one count of lying to federal investigators and to avoid jail time, he started talking. Well, Mueller has, the Mueller team has been really, really tight lipped about their investigation. We haven't heard a peep out of Bob Mueller, not a peep. Anything that we know about what's going on in the investigation, which is actually very little, has come from people who have either been interviewed by Mueller or testified. It's usually on the other side. They leak the information. That information is not coming out of Mueller's office. They are quiet as a mouse, as they should be. But now, the only time we get some real insight, concrete insight, is when court filings are made because they're public. And we found out, you know, get a little more information and kind of put pieces together. And in the Flynn sentencing memo, finally, a year later, we found out that Flynn was, quote, gave substantial assistance in ongoing investigations. That's what Mueller's team put in the official sentencing memo. And they suggested no jail time for Flynn because he was so cooperative. Now, a lot of, you know, people have been focusing on Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort because what they did was a little more sexy, a little more salacious. So people pay more attention to that. I mean, you know, you got Cohen and the porn stars and the Playboy Playmate payoffs and Manafort running around with Russian oligarchs and lying about stuff. And Flynn has kind of been quiet, but he's significant because he, remember I said he was one of the first to plead guilty and he's the only one out of all of these players that was there from the campaign through the transition into the administration. So he's kind of a bridge to all of those things and potential collusion or anything that's inappropriate. You know, Flynn kind of was there for all three phases that have been under investigation. So it, some of the things that a lot of his sentencing memo was redacted. It was blacked out. So we couldn't see that. And that happens if it, you know, they don't want that information going public to compromise an investigation or if there's national security implications. But what was key in this was the fact that a, it told us there's an ongoing investigation and there's more than one. There's at least three. And so does that mean there's more shoes to drop? And apparently Flynn met with this, the uh, special prosecutor's office 19 times. That's a lot. That's a lot. 
So he had a lot to say. He had a lot to say. So stay tuned about, you know, what else comes from the Flynn information. Now, Paul Manafort, he was next. Manafort. Manafort was the campaign chairman. Paul Manafort is one of the dirtiest political operatives in Washington and has been for decades. Decades. He also had a lobbying firm with Roger Stone, who was infamous as the dirty trickster during the Nixon administration. He wears that with a badge of valor, by the way. Roger Stone's another bad guy. Roger Stone... He he's in trouble himself. We he's looking at potential indictment. I think that's just inevitable. Him and this Jerome Corsi fellow. I talked about him on the podcast last week. Um, But Roger Stone potentially was was in bed with WikiLeaks and Julian Assange and that whole thing. And Julian Assange, Julian Assange has been working with Russian intelligence agencies, the GRU with the whole stealing, you know, the hacking of emails. And they basically use WikiLeaks to distribute that stolen email information, the DNC emails, the Hillary emails, the Podesta emails, all of that. That was all Russian GRU and Julian Assange with WikiLeaks as the facilitator. So that whole thing is a mess. And Roger Stone's right smack dab in the middle of it. But anyway, back to Manafort. Manafort has been taking money from foreign, very um, sketchy foreign people for years, most notably Ukraine, pro-Russian Ukrainians. And he dealt with a lot of Russian oligarchs, these billionaire guys that are all in bed with Putin because you can't get money and earn money at that level in Russia unless you're in bed with Vladimir Putin. So, you know, Manafort's history with sketchy Russian oligarchs goes back years, particularly an aluminum magnate named Deripaska. And he owes this guy millions and millions of dollars. It's also known that Paul Manafort offered to give private briefings about the status of the election to Deripaska. Paul Manafort years ago put together a, um, a strategy memo explaining to these Russian oligarchs how they could influence the American system to their benefit, basically what they could do to manipulate the American um, political and business political system and business environments and things that was advantageous to them. So Manafort, when he came on the campaign, raised some eyebrows. And then as we, that was in, I think, April of 2016 when Manafort came on. And everybody sold this as, oh, he's an old hand. He's very um, experienced. He knows what he's doing. You know, because back in the day, like 40 years ago, he managed the convention for, uh, was it Ford? I think in 76. I think it was. Yeah, back then or Nixon, somebody. But anyway, back in the 70s, he did the whole, I think it was Ford, the convention and held with delegate counting. And so he knew how to do that because they thought there was going to be a delegate fight during the convention because of Trump. They thought there was going to be revolts and there's going to have to be rounds of voting for Trump to actually get the nomination. So they brought in Paul Manafort, but Manafort worked for free. So that just raised eyebrows. Like what? Why is he working for free? 
Well, I mean, my theory was, yeah, he said he'd work for free because he didn't. His finances were so screwed up with, all, I mean, all kinds of shady business deals with real estate stuff and 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 uh, just uh, and he owed the Russians in you know Ukrainians m- money and he was violating tax laws. He was taking he took something like eighteen million dollars in cash under the table like it was nuts. But he was he was offering access. And pre, you know briefings and things. No wonder you offered to work for damn free. So, don't think that that wasn't on the radar of our investigators, because they were already looking into what the hell Russia was doing by the time Manafort was in full swing. So, it, he's a problem. He's a problem, and he only lasted a couple months during the election, also because the information started coming out about his shady business dealings with the Ukrainians. So he got pushed out, and that's when Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon came in, and they took over the campaign. <clears throat> well, Manafort ended up getting investigated because of those shady business dealings, and it uncovered all kinds of other crimes. And he ended up going to trial, was found guilty on a bunch of different counts, and he's, he's in his 70s, I think, now. So he's facing the rest of his life in prison. So he went through the first trial, he didn't plead, and he got convicted, And but he was facing a second trial. The first one was in Virginia, the second one was in Washington. I guess he decided he didn't want to go through that again. So he cut a deal. Well, in that deal that he cut with the special counsel, he's supposed to cooperate and tell them, you know, and give them information. Well, he ended up lying about coordinating with the Trump legal team and with Trump administration officials. He lied about... Um, how much information his team was giving them. So, so Manafort's legal team was sharing information with Trump's people to give them a heads up on what Mueller was looking into, the kind of questions he was asking. You can't do that. He violated his plea agreement. Like what, like what is, is this dude crazy? You don't mess with the special counsel like that unless he's afraid of somebody else more. Who knows? Because believe me, these Russian oligarchs don't play. So who knows what they have over Manafort? They could be threatening to kill his kid and his family and his wife. Who knows? But it was enough for him to risk his plea deal with, with the feds. And he did. So he got caught lying about a whole bunch of shit. And that's no no bueno. So Mueller pulled his plea agreement. And I can, I can guarantee you, Paul Manafort's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. You don't mess with the special prosecutor like that. But maybe he's been promised a pardon, right? Because we heard that Trump, and he said it more than once, he praised Manafort for not folding and being weak like Michael Cohen. And he has not ruled out a potential pardon for Manafort. Remember, the president of the United States, one of his powers that no one can stop him from doing is pardoning people. It's a plenary power, constitutionally guaranteed. So maybe Paul Manafort is like, whatever. I'll hold out because Trump's promised to pardon me. Who knows? But I can tell you that it would be politically perilous for Trump to do that. Many Republicans have come out and said that would be a problem. It would be considered an abuse of power. And it would be. But the only remedy to that is impeachment. So they talk a big game saying that it's politically perilous, but what are they going to do about it? I don't know. So that's Manafort. So he's all up there, all up in it with the Russians. 
That brings me to Michael Cohen. So Michael Cohen, he has been singing like a canary. Mr. Says Who, (laughs) Mr. I Take a Bullet for Trump. Yeah, all right. Well, that all went out the door real quick when he was facing jail time. And plus Donald Trump snubbed him. And, you know, that's the worst thing you can do. It's almost like snubbing a, you know, a woman. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Hell hath no fury like a sycophant whose whole life revolved around you and you gave them validation and self-worth and then you crushed them. That's what Trump did with Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen was a loser, half sec, you know, half second rate lawyer with some taxi cab medallions in New York, hustler, and got in with the Trump organization and it gave him a whole, you know, gave him his whole life. And Trump snubbed him. So Cohen began to sing like a canary. Now that's dangerous because Michael Cohen not only knows where the bodies are buried, he buried them. So that opens up a door into Trump's, the Trump organization, personal finances, I mean, uh, business finances, the Trump family, and whatever shady shit they were doing with the Trump organization and all of the stuff with the payoffs with the porn star Stormy Daniels and the pay- Playboy playmate Karen McDougal. We Trump denied any of it, right? I had nothing to do with it. I didn't do this. Well, you know that's bullshit. It's a lie. And now we know in legal documents that Michael Cohen said that he made these payments under the direction of Trump himself. That's a felony. It's a campaign finance violation. Some people are trying to poo-poo this, including the president. Now oh, it's no big deal. So why? Blah, blah, blah. No, it's a big deal because it could have potentially changed the course of the election. How would the, maybe the American people wouldn't have cared if they knew that Trump was paying off porn stars and all kinds of shit, having an affairs, you know, when his wife was pregnant or when she just had their kid. I mean, yeah, he's a shitty guy and he always has been, but maybe the American people wouldn't care anymore. I don't know, but they should have, they had a right to know. And he felt that it could have damaged him enough that he instructed um, Michael Cohen to pay them off. The Stormy Daniels thing, they created a fake organization to pay her off through this fake company. And they used the Trump organization's chief financial officer, uh, Weisselberg, to do it, to help him, you know, basically commit this. That's a problem. But the special prosecutor gave Alan Weisselberg immunity so who knows what he's gonna say he's been there for decades with the trump organization he knows all about the books dangerous territory david pecker who runs the national Enquirer, good friend of donald trump's for years they gave him immunity also he's all up in it because they negotiated a deal with through michael cohen to pay this karen mcdougall the playboy playmate off $150,000 to kill her story about her affair with Donald Trump. So this is, you know, why? Why all the lies and all the subterfuge and all the manipulation if nothing happened and it wasn't a big deal? Because it's all a big deal. Because Trump is dirty as hell. I've always said, follow the money. That's just the personal stuff. Never mind all the shady shit going on with the Trump organization and Russians. 
You know, the irony about the Cohen situation is that Trump could have just paid off Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal directly with his own money. There's no limit to what a candidate can for on a candidate who spends his own money. You just have to disclose it. It's all about transparency. That's the point of campaign finance laws because they don't want ultra rich people buying their way into office. Some people will say, well, that happens anyway. Well, sort of, but in different ways. You still have to follow campaign finance laws. You have to disclose certain things. And it's very complicated and it's very Byzantine. I mean, you couldn't pay me to be a campaign finance lawyer, but there are people who enjoy it and they're out there. And every campaign worth their salt should have a campaign finance expert on staff to avoid things like this. But either, I mean, if Trump would have just paid them directly instead of going through all this like underhanded back channeled shit, he wouldn't, this wouldn't have, he could have gotten away with it. It would have been above board. He could have just simply said it was for legal, a legal settlement. You still have to disclose it. All he had to say was a legal settlement. And the payment to Stormy Daniels, these, you have to report these things quarterly. That were, that would have been reported. That happened in what, October of 2016? That wouldn't have been reported until after the election. So nobody would have even seen it until after he was elected. But no, they either they were too arrogant or too ignorant to do to, to use the other options. So instead they tried to do do it under the table and it was illegal. And now it's a total shitstorm for everybody. Mm-hmm. Now Michael Cohen's going to jail. Not only for that, but you know, he lied to it came out that he lied to Congress. What did he lie to Congress about? Well, you know, lying to Congress, that's a separate thing. But what the, but then, but the, what the special counsel also got him under, well, let me back up. Michael Cohen, his case got referred to the Southern District of New York. Completely different jurisdiction than what Robert Mueller is doing. But they do work together because there's some crossover. But the Southern District of New York is actually who's prosecuting Michael Cohen. Because Michael Cohen got himself in trouble with a whole lot of other things, with business tax evasion and stuff with his taxi business and a couple other things that were federal crimes, financial crimes and things, and also these campaign finance things. So he's being prosecuted by those guys. But he's also like, hey, Bob Mueller, I know some stuff. You might want to talk to me. So there's been some crossover. But it's the Southern District of New York that actually has jurisdiction over Michael Cohen's um, prosecution and he's already pled guilty to a bunch of stuff and in those pleadings he said that he was directed by the president that's a big deal because that's a felony now Trump is banking on the fact that the Department of Justice has a memo that says guidance that says a president can't be indicted while he's in office doesn't mean he can't be indicted when he's out of office there are statute of limitations on certain things Campaign finance is one of them. I believe it's five years. So if Trump gets reelected, the statute of limitations would run out. If he doesn't get reelected, he's vulnerable. They could potentially charge him. Whether they will or won't, that remains to be seen, but it's possible. But Michael Cohen also, we find out recently, that he lied to Congress when he went to testify to them about Trump's business dealings with Moscow in his Trump Tower Moscow. This has been something that has hung out there for the last three years. And I've also said, follow when I say follow the money, 
I always mean Trump's business dealings. He has vehemently denied that he has any business interest in Russia, but he has been pursuing business in Russia for 30 plus years. It's documented. It's in his books. His biographers have written about it. It's very open. His own sons have bragged about Russian money keeping them afloat. They've bragged in, in back in 2008 about you know Russians being the main source, main buyers of their properties, of their high-value apartments. There is a long history of Trump and Russian involvement. So this is... So, so for Trump to keep denying that he has nothing to do with Russia is bullshit. It's bullshit. And only his sycophantic cult members believe that. Anyone looking at this objectively goes, no, you have plenty of business interests with Russia. Why else are you kissing Putin's ass all the time? Yeah, well, Trump was, they had a letter of intent signed to get a Trump Tower in Moscow built in 2015 and Michael Cohen claimed that that ended in early 2016 once they saw that the Trump campaign was actually like they had a possibility of winning something they backed off it well that turned out to be a lie they still were pursuing very actively this Trump Tower deal up until June of 2016 months after the original time they said they stopped why lie and Michael Cohen had direct contact with people who are who worked for Putin to try to facilitate the deal. Felix Sater, who worked for the Trump organization. Felix Sater is another bad guy. He was part of the Russian mafia. He's been in federal prison. He's been a federal informant. He's he is bad news, Felix Sater. Google Felix Sater if you have some time. And he's been another one. He, he Felix Eder was involved in Trump Soho. He was involved in Bayrock Capital Group, which helped finance Trump Soho. That money came from all kinds of very shady sources overseas. Trump Soho, by the way, is no longer Trump Soho. It's it went out of business and it was bought out by somebody else. It failed. But anyhow, Felix Sater and and Michael Cohen are buddies. And have been for many years, I think since childhood. They grew up in the same area in Brooklyn. And back in 2015, Felix Sater sent an email to Michael Cohen. And I'm going to read that email. This was on November 3rd, 2015. I arranged for Ivanka Trump to sit in Putin's private chair at his desk and office in the Kremlin. I will get Putin on this program and we will get Donald Trump elected. Sater wrote in the email to Michael Cohen on November 3rd, 2015. This was according to the New York Times. They had obtained this. I know how to play it, and we will get this done. Buddy, our boy can become president of the United States, and we can engineer it. I will get all of Putin's team to buy in on this. That was from Felix Sater to Michael Cohen. Our boy can become president of the United States, and we can engineer it. Now, Felix Sater, maybe he was talking a lot of shit. Some people say he was, you know, he likes to over-exaggerate. But looking at this now and looking at everything that took place since then, holy shit. What is, what really was going on here? 
Trump, Trump himself admitted that he was pursuing this business and that he didn't think he was going to win. So why would he pass up the opportunity to try to build a hotel in Moscow? But what does that mean? Well, I mean, they denied this for months that it was going when it was still going on, though. They said, oh, it ended. But no, it hadn't. And the Russians knew that. So they could potentially that's something they could have potentially had compromise or compromising information on Trump. They knew he was lying about the business relationship. They had the contacts. There was evidence of it. So, I mean, it's all starting to come together here. It's all starting to come together. And, you know, it's becoming more apparent that the collu- that collusion with Russia, Trump, with Trump's businesses and the and the campaign, the election it's becoming more apparent that there's less and less daylight here. So I think that there's a lot more to come. Last week was very consequential. Don't believe this bullshit when Trump tries to say that he was cleared. There's no collusion. It has nothing to do with him. Yeah, it has everything to do with him. Everything to do with him. So that's where we are. Um, We have to keep just paying attention to that as the and in the saga continues <laughs> so now i can talk about israel hard turn to israel and why i sound like this <laughs> why i have a little bit why i'm a little under the weather um you know israel it, it was i'm glad i had an opportunity to go there while um there were some things going on. I mean, well, there's always something going on in that region. But it uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a flare up down on the Gaza Strip and with like 500 rockets were launched into Israel. Also, um, it was discovered that ton- that's down the south part of Israel. In the north part of Israel, you have the Lebanese border and Hezbollah. And they're always trying to cause trouble. And it was discovered that they were building these tunnels into Israel to smuggle uh, weapons and terrorists. Israel discovered the tunnels and um, launched an operation to destroy them while we were over there. And then you have, uh, you know, obviously the West Bank. And that's always an ongoing thing uh, with control, of, you know, who controls what territory and Palestinians and the settlements and um you have the Golan Heights and the border with Syria and the Syrian civil war going on there. So it's a hot spot and there was a lot going on. And last week the UN um, had a resolution to condemn Hamas because the Hamas runs Gaza. Hamas is a terrorist organization. Um, you know, the pro-Palestinian side, they don't want to acknowledge that it's an ongoing battle. They say, no, it's a political organization and, they won't call them terrorists, and but they're terrorists. And that's part of the problem. Mahmoud Abbas, who um, basically is the head of the, the Palestinian Authority, his political party is Fatah, and, the, you know, Fatah and Hamas, they, they both represent Palestinians, but they kind of don't get along. They, there's a power struggle. Um but they will support Hamas against Israel, the common enemy. So it's that part's a little complicated, but the, uh, we did have an opportunity to meet with a, a Palestinian official. And I asked him the question, you know, how come Fatah won't 
acknowledge that Hamas is a terrorist organization. I knew what he was going to say, but I just wanted to put him in the hot seat. And, you know, the standard line is, well, you know, they are a political organization. And, yeah, okay. But um, we had a chance to um, spend time in Jerusalem. Uh, We had a professional archaeologist with us, which was really, really helpful because it just, it was like, it's like having Google at your fingertips, someone to physically tell you just about everything that was going on and what this location meant and the significance and the ancient history of it, and um, which was just invaluable. I mean, it was um, amazing um, to have him there for us, <clears throat> for our group. And in Jerusalem, you know, that that just the history there is is amazing it's just fascinating I mean it's one of the holiest places for three major religions in the world Christianity Islam and Judaism and to walk the streets where Jesus walked and you know where the temple mount was destroyed and uh just the you know where you know as a Christian just the locations just to be able to stand there and touch the same stones and uh it was it was really breathtaking it was breathtaking inside the old walls and the old you know the, the old city of Jerusalem and um it was uh i encourage anyone if they have the opportunity to ever go you got to go it really was just you know sitting on the same steps this Jesus is teaching steps like oh man i just sat there and just took it all in I had a chance to go to the Western Wall. A lot of times when politicians or, you know, heads of state go over to, to Israel, they go to the Western Wall because it, it's tradition to um, put prayers into the wall. So, you know, you see, and, and it's separated. The men are on one side, women are on the other. And uh, they take those prayers, I think, once a month, and um, they bury them in a Jewish uh, like cemetery or something like that. Do you know? Because they you know, so they're given up to God. So that was cool. I had, um, some prayers from my husband that he typed up and had me bring over. My mom had some that I brought over with me and I had my own. So I posted pictures. Um, I'll, I'll be posting more as the week goes by. I have so many and our schedule was really rigorous. So I didn't really have much time to post too much on social media. I thought I would, and I really didn't. I was so exhausted like every day. So I posted a couple pictures here and there, but I'll post more as I, um, as I recover because I'm still in recovery mode from, from the trip. But, um, not only did we do that though, but we also just the, just how Israel was born, you know, from in 1947 and, you know, six day war and the pre 1967 borders. And it was fascinating to be on the ground, to put that all in perspective and to just see it. Because we hear about this so much, you know, the Middle East conflict and, and, you know, peace in the Middle East. And and to see it all firsthand really, really puts it in perspective and have the opportunity to talk to officials, both in the Israeli government, in, you know, Palestinians, Palestinians who live there every day, Israelis who live there every day, Israeli Defense Force um, uh, officials. It's um, it was it was great. I, you know, I'm a nerd, so I like to soak all that policy stuff in anyway. Um, but it was, 
it was great. One of the other things that we did was we went to the um, National Holocaust Museum there. And honestly, I've never been to the Holocaust Museum here in D.C. I live in D.C. for 20 plus years and never went. I, I kind of like I, I mean, like I understood and I didn't really need to be reminded of the horrors of that. Some people don't get it and some they just need to see it. So I, I don't know. I'm just weird that way. And I felt I was like, ah, I don't really need to relive that. But in um, in in Israel, you know, that was part of our agenda. And we spent a couple of hours there. We had a guide. And I got to tell you, <clears throat> the artifacts, the 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 photos, the it was so emotional to see what the Jewish people went through during the Holocaust and how the world stood by for so long and allowed that to happen, including the United States. It was that that was I mean, I'm glad I did it. And some of the parallels with the Nazi propaganda and what's happening today, you know, people say you never make those comparisons. I'm sorry, there are parallels, the kinds of language being used, the tactics being used. I mean, obviously, there's nothing on the level of a Holocaust, but the tactics. Very scary. The similarities. And you know what? The term America first that originated during World War II that was that were people that came from people who did not want to get involved with what was happening in Europe. Now we're going to concentrate on America first. That's happening over there. You know, America didn't get involved until Pearl Harbor. Jews were being rounded up way before that. It could have been avoided, perhaps, if people had stepped up. Anyway, so there was that. And also, many people may not know, but I have German heritage. My grandfather is German. Setmeyer, Setmeyer is a German name. My grandfather's name was Emil Hugo Setmeyer. I mean, he doesn't get any more German than that. And his parents, my great-grandparents, they emigrated here from Germany in the 1920s. And I found out only a couple years ago that my great-grandfather was Jewish. We didn't know. My grandfather kind of blurted it out one day, just matter-of-factly, about how his dad would go to Temple on Saturdays in Patterson, New Jersey. I'm from Paramus, New Jersey. It's Bergen County. Patterson was the the closest city back then. I guess that's where most of the stuff was happening because it was still very rural where I grew up back then not now it's the mall capital of the northeast but back in the 19 you know 20s 30s and 40s it was still pretty rural with celery fields and turkey farms so everyone you know if you needed to get stuff from the market or whatever you went to patterson and my grandfather was like yeah you know we were like wait what (laughs) this is news to us (laughs) so it looks like i have some jewish heritage somewhere um you know they say it's passed down through the mother but Uh, on the mother's side. So I don't know if my great grandmother was practicing. I'm not sure because my grandfather never really talked about it. It was the weirdest thing, but interesting nonetheless. Actually, one year I actually, um, before we found out about the Jewish stuff, uh, I decided to go to the Ellis Island Foundation and look up my great grandparents, um, information. And I found it. And you can actually, and, and, and anyone listening, if you know that you had relatives that came through Ellis Island, you could probably do this too. You can do it online, actually. You put in your family name, 
and it searches a database and it'll show you the actual manifests of the ships that your family came through. You can see the notes written on it, the date they came through. It's really cool. And you can get it printed out and framed and stuff. And I did that for my grandfather years ago. It was cool. So I could trace that, you know, my family coming through Ellis Island um, on my mom's side. But anyway, so that also impacted me because my great aunt, my grandfather's sister, who died a couple of years ago, she did say, according to my mom, as I asked her, she did say that my great grandparents left Germany because they saw what was coming and they didn't, they weren't comfortable with it. And that was between World War One and obviously Hitler's rise. So they got out early. So the Holocaust Museum there in Israel um, had an impact, on, had a profound impact on me on, on, a, on a personal level and just can, continuing to motivate me to keep speaking up. Yeah. So there was that. Um, we had an opportunity to go down to the Gaza border, the border with the Gaza Strip. And, you know, I know that there are a lot of people who are sympathetic to the Palestinians and I get it. Um, I'm, you know, I'm sympathetic to the Israelis. I'm pro-Israel and I support the state of Israel. I support their right to exist. There are a lot of people on the other side that don't. And that is a non-starter. But the Israelis are not the aggressors here. Okay. The Israelis are not the ones that are launching bombs into civilian neighborhoods unprovoked they will defend themselves that's why it's the israeli defense forces but we can't turn a blind eye to what's happening with the terrorist side of hamas in the gaza strip and they oftentimes use civilians as shields so they can turn around and say oh look israel's the human rights abuser it's a lot more complicated so we were there we were in what's called the kibbutz which is like um, communities in, in Israel. They're kind of like socialist communities, communes where families live and you work on the kibbutz and they're self-sustaining with government support. And this one was qu- quite close to the Gaza border. And it was really poignant to see bomb shelters every 50 yards. And they were also school bus stops. Imagine your kid goes to school, they go to their bus stop. It's also a bomb shelter. They painted them so they didn't look like bomb shelters. You know, they had like, you know, like nice little paintings and things. They're freaking bomb shelters. Okay. That's how, that's what these people live with. They have 15 seconds when the air siren goes off and it's detected that a, that a bomb's come, that, you know, rockets are coming over. They have 15 seconds to seek shelter. That's it. That's how close they are. Could you imagine that? Kids in kindergarten, they're all the, the elementary schools were reinforced because they had terrorists that were coming over years ago and trying to shooting kids in their kindergarten classes. Yeah. So seeing that was pretty powerful also. But they live their lives every day and they don't live in fear. That's the resolve of the Israeli people. I have much respect for that. We also went up north to um, the border with Lebanon. And like I said before, you have Hezbollah up there, the other terrorists now coming from Lebanon. They're digging tunnels into Israel. 
And um, we had a meeting with a uh, Israeli intelligence officer who showed us videos and things of the tunnels and um, the propaganda videos of little kids being taught to hate Jewish people and pledging their allegiance to Hezbollah, a terrorist organization. Um, You know, I was already, some of the people in my delegation were not as well versed on the politics of that region and they were shocked by it. I wasn't because I'm familiar with it. I worked in Capitol Hill and, you know, I follow the stuff, but that was pretty intense also. We also um, went over to the Golan Heights and that's in, uh, that's at the border of Syria. And I was 150 yards away from the border with Syria. I posted a video of me inside a bombed out hospital that was also a Syrian army headquarters years ago, pre-1967. And uh, when that was part of Syria, actually, and they redrew the lines. But to look up to be that close to one of the worst civil wars in this in the world, you know, and what's going on there, that conflict was pretty intense. So I'm glad I had that chance. We also were briefed by a northern um, in, uh, command intelligence officer, too, on what's going on there. Amazing. Then, of course, we had the um, we had some of the more relaxed stuff that wasn't quite as intense. We were in Tel Aviv, which is a beautiful city. We we're on the water. That was really cool on um, the Mediterranean there. Um, we had an opportunity to go to the Sea of Galilee. We went up to Tiberias. Um, we took a cruise on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus walked. Um, we went to the uh, uh, the um, Mount Be- uh, the Beatitudes where Ch- Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Beautiful, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. The only problem is that it poured rain the last two days <laughs> when we were there. And uh, but we didn't care. We didn't let that stop us. I mean, you know, like, how many opportunities do you get to be in these kinds of places? Uh, where you know where Jesus grew up and the the just the archae- archaeological significance of so many things it was amazing um but we pushed through the rain we didn't care I got some water from the Sea of Galilee it was it was really cool so um so I'm grateful for those experiences and um we got a chance to go down to the Dead Sea but we didn't get to go to Masada which uh, you know General Mark Hurtling who I had on the on the program not too long ago he was like, you got to go to Masada. And that was on the agenda. But because of the rain, it washed out the roads. So we didn't get a chance to go to Masada and actually go swimming in the Dead Sea, which I was really looking forward to. But that's OK. Mother Nature had a different plan. We went to a different part of the Dead Sea in Qumran, which is where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that was pretty cool. And I posted a couple of pictures of that. And we were right across from Jordan. Um, we passed Jericho. Um and all of the, the date um, the date trees and stuff. And oh my God, the food was amazing. Everything was so fresh. It was just a, it was a spectacular trip. Um, and I encourage anyone, if they get the opportunity to go, they should go and experience uh, Israel. And something else that was really um, important for people to see was Israel's humanitarianism. 
And one of the projects that they we got a chance to see. Oh, before I get to that, we also went to the top of one of the buildings in Tel Aviv. So I took a picture. You're like, it's like a 360 degree view of of um, Tel Aviv and of Israel. You see the Mediterranean on one side. And you can see the West Bank to the other side. It was that was really cool, too. Uh, I forget the name of the building now. It's escaping me. But I forget how high up we were. But I posted pictures of that. I'll post more pictures on the Twitter feed and on my Instagram, people can go check them out. But one of the humanitarian programs, and there's many of them in Israel, is um, something called um, Save the Children. And they they actually do, um, they take in cardiac patients, children, pediatric cardiac patients from other countries, mainly Ethiopia, uh, in, um, in God, from Gaza, West Bank, you know, it doesn't matter if they're Palestinian, they take them who, you know, whatever, whoever they are, and um, they offer free medical services, uh, cardiac services for kids that have heart conditions. That was really um, touching to see as well. Um, and that's privately funded. So it was an all in all, it was an amazing trip. Um, it was totally well worth coming back with a little sniffles, <laughs> I'm a little tired, but that's okay. And um, I'm thankful to our hosts, and we had a chance to be there during Hanukkah. I experienced Shabbat dinner. It was uh, it was um, it was great. So that was my trip to Israel, and um, <clears throat> I got to talk about missile defense systems and nerd out on that stuff too. Pomegranates. I got to eat pomegranates. It took me a couple days, but I was in pomegranate heaven. It's one of my favorite foods in life since I was a little kid. And pomegranates are one of the seven um, uh, fruits of Israel, of that region over there. So, and they represent, it represents love and fertility and wisdom and all kinds of great things. So I had lots of pomegranates and brought back a ceramic pomegranate that's on display in my display case in my living room. (laughs) So I even got that part of it. So that was cool too. Um, And that leads me to my feel good story of the week. And what made me think about this was something I saw in Israel. They have similar to what we have here. We have like Arbor Day. I don't know if we still do that. But when I was a kid, every year on Arbor Day, we'd go out and plant a tree or something like in our elementary school or in a park somewhere in our hometown. And in Israel, they have um, kind of an ongoing Arbor Day, and they've been, because, you know, there's a lot of desert there, and they, they're trying, they, they've come up with amazing ways to have things grow there. And they have, this, like, drip irrigation and all kinds of really amazing technology um, to grow things in the desert. Anyway, so they also have this program where they plant millions and millions of trees in places in, in Israel, So that when I came, when I was looking for my feel good story for this week, I came across this really cool story about an elementary school that um, donates trees to troops during Christmas. So they send hundreds of Christmas trees to troops that are stationed around the world. And it's a school called um, Bethlehem Elementary School. Coincidentally, we were actually on the border um, with Bethlehem. Bethlehem is in the what the Palestinian controlled part of the country. 
and we're there. There you see the fence and ever the fencing that divides. I mean, the proximity of the is you know of, of Israel with the Palestinians and it's a ama- it's pretty amazing. Like it's there's like not a desert in between them. It's like neighborhoods. It's like a field and then there's like a fence and it's right there. It's fascinating. But anyway, so the name of this elementary school is Bethlehem Elementary School. It's in New Hampshire, and they have a, tr- a uh, there's a program called Trees for Troops. And it's currently in its 14th year of operation. And uh, for the troops that receive the trees, they get them for free um, from FedEx also. FedEx is part of this program and they ship the trees over for no, at no cost. So it's more than 200,000 sustainable trees have been grown from 25 different states that have been donated to this Trees for Troops program since 2005. Um it's not just this school, but it's a bunch of schools around the country. But this one was one in particular that stood out to me. And um, I thought that was just really, really cool. So good for them. And at this time of the year, it's always important to remember our troops. When I worked in Congress, I used to send care packages and, and write Christmas cards to our troops. Um, you know, we get to spend our, the holidays with our families a lot of families in the military, they're without their loved ones because they're out serving this country and protecting not only our freedoms, but freedoms around the world. So um, remember our troops. Maybe maybe donate a tree. Get involved. Something. <laughs> anyway, that's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Uh, you can always find me on social media. You can find me on Facebook or Instagram uh, at the Tara Setmayer and Twitter, of course, where I am most active um, at honestly underscore Tara is the podcast Twitter. That's honestly underscore Tara or my personal Twitter at Tara Setmayer. Look forward to seeing you next week. If you have any questions, comments, tweet at me, send me an Instagram message. I'm happy to oblige. Look forward to seeing you next week. Mm-hmm.